Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome back to The Checkup. I'm Milika McCutcheon. And I'm Sam Pillay. And we're both lawyers in Barry Nilsson's Queensland Health Law Team. I think it's fair to assume that most of our listeners will be familiar with the very public rise and fall of pop icon Britney Spears. We all witnessed the headlines that followed Britney's journey as she transformed from the world's inaugural and, at one point, most Googled pop princess to a young mother tormented by paparazzi and the toll this inevitably took on her mental health, which played out publicly for the world to see. But in recent years, Britney Spears has hit headlines for unexpected reasons. It started with concerned fans observing obscure social media posts and asking, is she okay? Then, as more information was released to the public, the full extent of her situation became known to the world. As it turns out, Britney had been fighting a rather complex legal battle. Britney Spears was subject to a conservatorship beginning in 2008. Her father, Jamie Spears, was appointed as her conservator, meaning that he could make personal and financial decisions on her behalf. 13 years later, this conservatorship is still in place. In recent years, there's been numerous court hearings, including attempts to have her father removed as conservator. Recently, on Friday the 13th of August 2021, Jamie Spears finally agreed to step down as conservator, and allow for another person to be appointed in due time. His lawyer says he is willing to step down when the time is right, but this transition needs to be orderly. So, Melika, it sounds like Brittany will still have a conservator. It'll just be somebody else. But why was it so hard for Brittany to have a say in who controls her own personal and financial decisions? Why was the independence to take decisions taken away in the first place? And why has this lasted 13 years? The situation raises this question, could this or does this happen in Australia? Welcome to episode 19 of The Checkup, where we are looking at the law behind Britney Spears' conservatorship. Let's go back to 2008, when the conservatorship first began. Britney had just encountered well-chronicled troubles, the rehab trips, the head-shaving incident, her umbrella-wielding assault on a photographer's car. She ended up hospitalised, detained involuntarily in a psychiatric facility for evaluation under what is known in California law as the 5150 hold, where a person can be held against their will for psychiatric assessment for up to 72 hours on two separate occasions. This ultimately resulted in Jamie Spears, Brittany's father, being granted what was initially an emergency temporary conservatorship by an LA Superior Court judge. Eight months later, the conservatorship was made permanent. Brittany was 26 years old at the time. The judicial branch of California courts defines a conservatorship as a court case where a judge appoints a responsible person or organisation to care for another adult who cannot care for themselves or manage their own finances. 
In other words, a conservatorship is a court-ordered arrangement in which one person is appointed to make personal and financial decisions for another, who is unable to make these decisions themselves. In California, a conservator can decide on and manage the conservatee's financial assets, income, and control their estate, as well as matters relating to their health and medical treatment. Jamie was named conservator for Brittany. An attorney, Andrew Wallet, was assigned to be co-conservator of the estate to assist Jamie in managing Brittany's financial affairs. In 2019, Jodie Montgomery was temporarily appointed when Jamie had to step down due to a health crisis. Jodie Montgomery is temporary personal conservator of the person, which means she makes decisions regarding Brittany's person, such as health, food, clothing, shelter, safety, comfort, recreation, and social needs. This role also includes medical and healthcare decisions and excludes any involvement with financial decisions. Okay, so what effect has this conservatorship had on Brittany? In June 2021, the New York Times obtained confidential court records that detailed Brittany's expressed opposition to the conservatorship much earlier than what was previously known and said that it restricted everything from whom she dates to the colour of her kitchen cabinets. Of greater concern, Brittany was reportedly hospitalised and medicated against her will in 2019, with Brittany citing the reason to be a refusal to perform. Brittany told the court her therapist forced her to take lithium after she refused to go through with her Las Vegas residency in 2019. She has also testified that she is forbidden from removing her intrauterine device, or IUD, which prevents her from getting pregnant. This raised some red flags for us here at The Checkup, and we decided to do some investigating. Brittany, if you're listening, we've got your back. So the key issue here was, was a conservatorship legally indicated? The California Probate Code states that a conservator can be appointed if someone is unable to provide properly for his or her personal needs for physical health, food, clothing, or shelter. A conservator can be established over someone's financial affairs if that person is substantially unable to manage his or her own financial resources or resist fraud or undue influence. So generally speaking, a conservatorship would not be granted for someone who can cooperate with a plan to meet their basic needs or who has the capacity to sign a power of attorney instead. So why was a conservator appointed? Well, Willika, this is interesting. According to The New Yorker, three psychiatrists were asked to provide the required declaration confirming Spears' lack of mental fitness. The third, James Spar, provided it. However, earlier this year, Spar said of Britney Spears on a podcast, I don't know why she still has a conservatorship. This was now 13 years ago. Most of the court documents during this time have been sealed and not pub- are not publicly accessible. So there remains a great deal of mystery around the situation. What we can answer, however, is how the law in Queensland, Australia would respond. Lisa Fairley is a lawyer in our health law practice and has a specialty in guardianship and administration matters and human rights issues. Lisa, in Queensland, we use the term guardianship rather than conservatorship. How do these two concepts differ? Well, in Queensland, there are two forms of conservatorship, guardianship and administration. A guardian is someone who is appointed to make personal and health decisions on behalf of an adult, i.e. Jodie Montgomery. And an administrator is someone who is appointed to make financial decisions on behalf of an adult, i.e. Jamie Spears. These two appointments are governed by a piece of legislation in Queensland called the Guardianship and Administration Act. 
The guardianship system in Queensland provides for the appointment of a guardian and or administrator for an adult who does not have capacity to make decisions for themselves in circumstances where there is a risk to that adult. As Millica mentioned before, the California Probate Code states that a conservator can be appointed if someone is unable to provide properly for his or her personal needs for physical health, food, clothing or shelter. A conservator can be established over someone's financial affairs if that person is substantially unable to manage his or her own financial resources or resist fraud or undue influence. The concepts are similar and provide generally for the same outcome, that being that another person is appointed by a judiciary body to make decisions on behalf of an adult who is unable to make decisions for themselves. However, delving a little deeper into the law in both jurisdictions reveals some stark contrasts in protections and guiding principles. Okay, so you talk about the concept of having impaired capacity. What does that mean? So it's important to note in Queensland that the starting position in any application is a presumption of capacity. This is achieved through the general principles of the Act, which are at their core a statement of human rights. These rights have been further codified and strengthened through the recent enactment of the Human Rights Act here in Queensland. It is therefore up to the person bringing an application for the appointment of a guardian or administrator to prove that that adult in question lacks capacity, rather than the adult in question having to prove that they do have capacity. In theory, this should operate as a protection to a person's human rights. Okay, that makes sense. In practice, however, once a decision as to capacity has been made, there are difficulties, practically and financially, in overturning such a declaration as to capacity. For instance, a capacity assessment with a medical practitioner can cost upwards of $4,000. So whilst there is no definition of incapacity, there is within the Act a definition of capacity, and that has three elements. One, understanding the nature and effect of decisions about a matter, and two, freely and voluntarily making decisions about that matter, and three, communicating the decisions in some way. Here, capacity is also time-specific, domain-specific, and decision-specific. For example, a finding could be made that although Brittany lacked capacity to manage a large quantum of money and make complex financial decisions, she still may be found to have capacity to make treatment decisions about her own health and body, such as whether she wanted an IUD inserted. It also means that even though a decision about her capacity was made at the initial hearing back in 2008, capacity is time-specific, and things may have drastically changed between now and then. And in Queensland, we've also got the benefit of the capacity assessment guidelines, which the government put out last year. So what about the law in California? So in contrast, the Californian law provides a detailed and prescriptive, but not exhaustive, definition of incapacity. There is a separate definition of capacity to consent to proposed medical treatment as well. Their legislation also includes a rebuttable presumption and requires a psychologist or medical doctor with at least two years' experience diagnosing dementia, which is interesting, to complete a capacity declaration for the purposes of recommending a conservatorship. So there are reports that Brittany has been unable to hire a lawyer, and there's even been a court ruling to the effect that Brittany has no capacity to retain an attorney. 
The notion of not being able to retain a lawyer if you're choosing due to capacity raises a number of concerns, including that of access to justice. Lisa, how would this play out in Queensland? Well, thankfully, the position is quite different in Queensland. It comes back to these general principles in the Schedule 1 of the Guardianship and Administration Act, which provides for the presumption of capacity. In the case of Bucknell and the Guardianship and Administration Tribunal, Justice Byrne held that adults who are the subject of applications must be deemed to have capacity in order to instruct their lawyers to either A, resist an application, or B, make an application for a declaration of their capacity, or C, make an application for review of the appointment with the purpose of having that appointment revoked. Provided that the lawyer can obtain coherent instructions from the client in relation to the conduct of the matter. His Honour held that to adopt any other interpretation would produce an illogical and absurd result that would undermine the presumption of capacity contained in our Act. That's right, it sounds like you get stuck in a vicious circle. So I mentioned earlier that there were reports that Brittany was forbidden from removing her IUD, which prevents her from getting pregnant. Even when a guardian is appointed under Queensland law, could this happen here? Sam, the short answer to this question is yes, but it's a bit more complicated because an IUD is not a permanent sterilisation procedure. Therefore, there are less safeguards involved. In Queensland, if Brittany was to object to a proposed treatment, there are some protections in the legislation. For example, under Section 67 of the Act, the healthcare provider can only provide treatment in the face of objection by an adult if the adult has minimal or no understanding of what the healthcare involves or why the healthcare is required and only where the healthcare is likely to cause the adult no distress or temporary distress that is outweighed by the benefit. Temporary contraceptive devices, such as an IUD, can be contrasted against sterilisation procedures under the legislation here in Queensland. Queensland legislation has a number of safeguards regarding sterilisation, which is considered special health care and requires an application to the tribunal for consent. Just as an example, in a 2011 QCAT decision, the tribunal considered whether an 18-year-old who was severely disabled should be subjected to sterilisation by way of a hysterectomy. The court considered specifically, in line with our guardianship legislation, whether there are alternative forms of healthcare available and the associated short and long-term risks of the proposed procedure. Despite the medical evidence in this case, the tribunal was not satisfied that there were more practicable ways of overcoming problems with menstruation or that it was medically necessary within the meaning of the Act. The application for consent to special health care was subsequently dismissed as the criteria for consent had not been met in this case. So sterilisation is something that's taken really seriously and there are these safeguards which significantly restrict whether or not the tribunal can consent. This is interesting when you look at how the legislation actually defines sterilisation as it's defined as including treatment that's, quote, reasonably likely to ensure the patient is permanently infertile. Look at Brittany. So she's 39 years old. And given that, enforced retention of an IUD for several more years might end up with the same practical outcome. Definitely. Okay, so what about the reports of forcing medication? Brittany told the court that her therapist forced her to take lithium after she refused to go through with her Las Vegas residency in 2019. So this will be a very lawyer answer, but the answer to this is largely dependent on the unique facts of this situation. 
It's arguable that in some instances, the use of medication could be considered chemical restraint and a restrictive practice under our legislation. This would require a tribunal order or a guardian be specifically appointed to consent to restrictive practices. However, if the medication was for the proper treatment of a diagnosed mental illness or physical condition, then a guardian is capable of consenting. It is unclear whether the lithium Brittany says she was forced to take was for a diagnosed mental illness or a physical condition. If so, it would be likely to be within the guardian's powers to consent to such treatment and care in relation to that condition. So I'm thinking a lot of these issues will come down to who's calling the shots on the diagnosis and treatment. There are references in some of the media reports to Brittany's medical team, and this would no doubt include a psychiatrist, perhaps several of them, although not James Spar. There's a lot that hangs on the evidence of these professionals, which begs the question, who's responsible for the hiring and firing of the medical team? Presumably an arm of the conservatorship is making these decisions, and given the costs that have to be paid from somewhere, it seems likely the financial conservator will have the ultimate say, who up till now has been Jamie. So, coming back to Queensland now, what can happen here if a person has issues with their appointed guardian? So in Queensland, if Brittany was to apply for another person instead of her father to be appointed as her guardian or administrator, she could do so at any time and on her own initiative. Or another interested party could also do so. Even if she never initiated a review, all applications are reviewed by QCAT at the end of what is most commonly a five-year appointment. There are some appointments in existence without review dates, but such orders are no longer made by the tribunal. This was a change that came about to enhance protections of people under such orders. If Brittany wanted to rebut the finding that she did not have capacity, then she could seek a declaration of capacity at any time and put forward evidence to prove that she has capacity. Under the Act, if it's determined that the adult has capacity for a matter, then the existing appointment must be revoked. Okay, so it's also reported in the media that many within Brittany's team, specifically her father and her lawyers, are being paid large sums of money, considered to be wages for acting as her conservators. One report said in 2018, Britney's conservatorship spent $1.1 on legal and conservative fees, covering Samuel Ingham, as well as the rest of the legal work that goes into maintaining the arrangement. Mr Ingham's total earnings from Britney's conservatorship since 2008 are reportedly near $3 million US dollars. Brittany's also responsible for paying for lawyers on both sides of the case, including those arguing against her wishes. Her father, Jamie, was also reportedly receiving a salary of $130,000 a year and reimbursement for his office from the conservatorship plus 1.5% of revenues of performances and merchandise linked to Brittany's residency in Las Vegas. Lisa, could we see this happen here? I don't think so. This would likely be considered a conflict under Section 37 of the Guardianship and Administration Act, as the guardians could be seen as having a personal monetary interest in acting as the guardian and may become conflicted in their role. Certainly seems to be the case in Brittany's. So look, it's sounding like Brittany would be better off moving to Queensland, right? <laughs> Potentially, yes. There have been some recent changes to the guardianship framework in Queensland which place greater importance on the presumption of capacity and a focus on adults with impaired capacity participating in their own decision-making. There is also the recent enactment of the Human Rights Act in Queensland in 2019. QCAT is a public entity and therefore bound by this human rights legislation. We still have a way to go, 
and there exist certain aspects of procedures codified in the legislation which create opportunities for abuse or exploitation, such as in Brittany's case. For example, under Section 12 of the Guardianship and Administration Act, an interested person is able to make an application to QCAT for the appointment of a guardian or administrator. An interested person is defined as a person who has sufficient and genuine concern for the rights and interests of the other person. However, in practice, this is a low threshold for a person to apply, and it can mean that nosy neighbours who have barely met the adult in question are able to file an application. Brittany might have a few nosy neighbours if she moved here. Where this is particularly troublesome is where interim orders are made. Interim orders can be made where QCAT is satisfied on reasonable grounds that an adult has impaired capacity and that there is an immediate risk of harm to their health, welfare or property. In practice, though, interim orders are often made in circumstances where potential harm is alleged, but the immediacy is arguable. It means that interim orders appointing a guardian or administrator can be made on the papers, where QCAT is satisfied that an adult may lack capacity or where a proper hearing has not occurred. Even though interim orders are short-term and only for a few months, as you can imagine, a lot can change in this time. A person's property can be sold, treatment providers changed. There are certainly issues around whether the making of such interim orders are incompatible with the Human Rights Act and the protection of a fair hearing. Yes, and in fact, it seems that Brittany's predicament all started with the emergency temporary conservatorship following the 5150 hold. And here we are today. Milika, what do you reckon? Well, it's easy to look back on the last 13 years of the conservatorship and think, what were the people around her doing and what were Brittany's doctors doing? So if you look at the situation of a doctor in Queensland who may be dealing with patients who either have a guardian or have known fluctuating capacity, but they express an objection to the proposed treatment, what's the situation there? That's a great point. And we come back to that Section 67 situation that Lisa mentioned earlier, where a doctor knows, or even if they reasonably should know, that a patient objects. The exercise of power by a guardian is not effective consent to the treatment, other than in those limited exceptions. So doctors potentially providing treatment without proper consent, which could open them up to both civil and criminal liability, as well as an offence under Section 79 of the Guardianship Act. And there are also potential regulatory consequences. Best option here is to get in touch with the Office of the Public Guardian. The OPG has put out some statements about this in its healthcare framework, noting specifically that it considers providing treatment despite an objection to be particularly intrusive. The framework also says that public guardian considers the person's right to make their own decisions, regardless of capacity, as being fundamental to their inherent dignity. In Queensland, we also have the mental health legislation, which reflects similar principles. So as we've seen, there are some significant differences here between the legal landscape in Queensland and the situation in California. We'll all be watching closely what happens with Brittany over the coming weeks and months. In the meantime, thank you for tuning into this episode of The Checkup. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with our health law team or subscribe to our insights, head to bnlaw.com.au. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Checkup on any podcasting platform. Chat soon.